Section 13 of The History of Minnesota and Tales of the Frontier, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jill Engel. The History of Minnesota and Tales of the Frontier, Part 2, by Charles E. Flandrau. Section 13. Winnemucca's Gold Mine. Everyone who has lived in a mining country in its early periods, before its resources had been prospected and pretty well defined, will recall the fact that stories and rumors of a mysterious mine of great richness, which exists somewhere, are always in circulation. The discoverer of this mine is either dead, without having revealed its exact location, or it is known only to the Indians, who are compelled to secrecy by awful oaths, or fear of death from their chief or members of their band. At any rate, there is always a profound mystery connected with the hidden treasure, that envelops it with a tinge of romance and a spice of danger to those who seek to break the spell and lift the veil. There is also just enough known about it, which has leaked out through some obscure channel, to lend some slight probability to the story, and many have been the attempts to discover the bonanza by credulous and adventurous miners, but ever without success. When I was living in Nevada in 1864, I became closely associated with an old Mormon by the name of Rose. He had been a settler in the Washoe Valley long before the discovery of rich silver mines at Virginia City, known as the Comstock Lode, and necessarily at a time when no one inhabited the country but Mormons and Indians. The principal tribe of Indians were the Piutes, whose head chief was Winnemucca. These Indians inhabited the country around Pyramid Lake, about a hundred miles to the northeast of Carson City, where I resided. Rose was known to have been an intimate friend of Winnemucca in times past, and to have performed some important service for him, which had placed the chief under lasting obligations to him and rumors said that in compensation he had disclosed to Rose the whereabouts of the most valuable gold mine on all the Pacific coast, and that Rose was the only white man who knew anything about it. The truth of these rumors was fortified by the existence of three old and abandoned arrastras, and a twenty-five-foot overshot water wheel, which had evidently been erected to drive the arrastras, that stood on one side of the back streets of Carson City, and were known to have been constructed by Rose, and as there was no stream in the neighborhood to propel the arrastras, it was generally believed that when Rose built these works, he had a mine, the ore of which was so rich that he could bring it on pack animals, crush it with these machines, and divert a stream to propel them. As quite a large sum had been expended on these works, it was evident that they were intended to carry out some such purpose, which had been interrupted for sufficient reasons. At any rate, I caught the mine fever, and after many conferences with Rose, I and my associates, William S. Chapman and Judge Atwater, got far enough into his confidence to obtain an admission from him that he knew the exact location of the mysterious mine, the secret of which he had learned from Winnemucca, and dare not disclose without the consent of that chieftain. But he assured us that it was fabulously rich. It was then learned that the mine was within the limits of the Piute Reservation, and even if we had the consent of the Indians to work it, we would not be allowed to do so by the United States government. Here were presented two formidable obstacles. 
but we were so well satisfied that we had a fortune within call that we were determined to remove them both. Our first operations were upon Winnemucca, whom we proposed to conquer by presence and flattery, and succeeded to the extent of eliciting from him a promise that, if we could obtain permission from the United States government to enter upon the reservation and work the mine, he would disclose its whereabouts. All I can say about this branch of the case is that with a great deal of delicate and masterly diplomacy, in which the interests of the Indians formed the principal argument used, we secured the desired permission and prepared for an expedition to the mine. It is as well here to say, for the benefit of the uninitiated, that all such operations are conducted with the greatest secrecy and mystery, because should it be discovered that any such enterprise was on foot, its projectors would be watched day and night, and followed to their destination by half the community. The government sent out a representative to see that the interests of the Indians were properly protected, and we got ready to start. The agent of the government was also charged to look up and report upon the progress of a mill for the Piutes, for which large appropriations had been made, and which was supposed to be situated on the rapids of the Truckee River, which is the outlet of Lake Tahoe and runs about northeast in the direction of the Piute Reservation, along the course to be followed by us. I mention this fact only in order to bring into the story the terse and witty report of the agent, said to have been made about his discoveries regarding the mill. He said, He found a dam by a mill site, but he didn't find any mill by a dam site. Our outfit consisted of a light farm wagon with a four-mule team, which we procured from two Mormon brothers who lived in the Washoe Valley and were skilled guides all over Nevada, both of whom we took along as guides, cooks, and to drive and care for the team. Rose took along a pony, which we led, and the government agent, Old Rose, and myself formed the passenger list. We were supplied with eatables and drinkables for a long campaign, but as it rains only once a year in that country, we never encumbered ourselves on a march with tents, except in the rainy season. In fact, the ground between the sage bushes and greasewood trees is so dry and clean that you don't need even blankets or robes to sleep on, but they are usually carried. Our course lay down the valley of the Truckee River to its big bend, where Rose was to leave us and go to Pyramid Lake for Winnemucca. We accomplished this part of the journey, a distance of about one hundred miles, in three days, without any special incident, except on one occasion when we were rounding a projecting point in the river, on a ledge of rocks, some driftwood got entangled with the legs of our leading mules, and came very near dumping us all into the boiling and rushing current, which would inevitably have drowned the whole party. But we reached our destination safely. At the Big Bend, which is now one of the principal stations on the Central Pacific Railroad, we found a spacious piece of bottom land, well supplied with grass for our animals, and a clump of six tall, stately cottonwood trees, presenting an inviting place to camp, which we accepted as our resting place. The next morning, Rose mounted his pony and started for the lake, saying he would return in a couple of days with the chief, who would guide us to the mine and fortune. The government agent was an old friend of mine, a California 49er, and a most companionable fellow. The Mormons were excellent cooks and most efficient camp men. We had abundant camp supplies, supplemented with fine fish brought to us by the Indians, so we settled down for a delightful rest. Every night the men would make a cheerful crackling fire of dry driftwood from the river, hobble the mules, and fall asleep for the night 
leaving us to enjoy the soft summer air and brilliant moonlight while discussing our future plans when possessed of the boundless wealth that only awaited the coming of rose and the chief before retiring for the night which only meant lying down on a blanket we usually reclined each against a tree with a demijohn between us and by the time sleep overcame us the fortunes of croesus aster and vanderbilt combined were mere trifles compared with our anticipated wealth for were we not to be soon endowed with the magic touch of midas we reveled in our repose seasoned with the exultation of hope and the demijohn until about four days had glided away when even such delights began to pall it became a little monotonous and still no rose and no winnemucca the fifth and even the sixth day passed and yet they came not and we were driven to the conclusion that either rose had been victimized by the piutes or we had been victimized by rose so nothing was left for us but to pull up stakes and wend our weary way back to carson here we found rose with the excuse that winnemucca had told him that he dared not give up the secret of the mine for fear his band would kill both rose and himself and that he had not dared to return to the camp for fear the indians would follow him and destroy us all and so ended our venture we came out of the enterprise wiser and poorer men to the amount of about one thousand dollars as we had left town at midnight and returned at the same quiet hour we were able to keep our adventures to ourselves and escape the ridicule of more experienced miners many of whom however had passed through similar experiences under varying circumstances i have never been able fully to satisfy myself whether rose acted in good faith or not but as he had no hope of gain outside of the mine i am inclined to believe his story my next mining experience resulted much the same way rich finds were reported in the walker river country and a small syndicate of us outfitted a party of old and experienced miners to visit the locality and see what they could pick up they started in the usual mysterious manner at the dead of night and in about two weeks returned and brought to my office a gunny bag full of ore which they left and we appointed a meeting the next night at one o'clock when the town was supposed to be asleep to examine the bag and pass upon the contents one of the prospectors tapped the sack affectionately and winking at me in the most significant manner said judge we've got the world by the tail it's all pure silver and there are a million tons of it lying on the top of the ground of course my curiosity and expectations were aroused to the highest pitch and i awaited the appointed hour with impatience before the party arrived all the windows were darkened with sheets and blankets refreshments were prepared and they dropped in one at a time to avoid notice the bag was opened and its contents displayed upon the table it was a pure white and brilliant metal about the weight of silver and with the assistance of the refreshments we had convinced ourselves before daylight that it was all pure silver i took a chunk of it about the size of an orange and with one of the miners went down to the mexican mill to have it assayed the assayer took it looked it over and asked if we wanted it assayed for iron my companion immediately answered i'll bet you a thousand dollars there's no iron in it the assayer replied we don't bet on such things, but I will soon tell you all about it. And, after putting it to the test, he reported, Magnetic iron, 95%, no trace of gold or silver. We let the world's tail go, put our own between our legs, and went home. Two of the worst disappointed men in all of Nevada, and that was the last of my mining efforts.
End of section 13.